What's going on, everybody? Welcome inside episode 1010 of the Tall Can Audio Podcast. My name is Matt Robinson, coming to you from our studio in beautiful Bytown, Canada. We are on social media at Tall Can Audio. Give us a follow there and uh, interact with us. Let us know what you think of these episodes, everything going on in the world of sport right now, what craft beers you're trying. We'd love to hear from you guys. Uh, hit us up at Tall Can Audio and uh, make sure you're subscribed to the pod wherever you're hearing us right now. Whether it's Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, wherever you are, hit follow, hit subscribe. We'd love to have you guys on board. Great show today. Our friend Dave Bedini is going to be here, of course, from the Rio Statics in the West End Phoenix. The guy is a tremendous musician. He's a writer. He, he does it all. And uh, he is part of a production that will debut on CBC this Wednesday night. That is the 14th, uh, called Summit 72, as we mark 50 years since that 1972 Canada-Russia series. Uh, I know a lot of you are looking forward to checking that out. Uh, we'll get to Dave in just a second. Uh, some good stuff up on the podcast feed right now, if you haven't had a chance to check it out yet. Episode 1009, Rob was back in studio, talked a little Blue Jays, talked a little UFC, talked about uh, the legacy of Queen Elizabeth and uh, and Canada's relationship with the monarchy. It all fits together quite nicely. Uh, Rob told us what he did with the rest of his summer. Uh, it's a good episode. Go back and check that out. Episode 1008 dropped over the weekend, if you missed it. Uh, that was with Andrew Berkshire of the SDPN. We were talking all things Habs, Cole Caulfield, Kerry Price, um, Uri Slefkovsky, everything going on around the Habs who uh, on Monday named Nick Suzuki as uh, their newest captain. Great chat with him. Uh, that's episode 1008. And back on episode 1007, our pal Graham Nichols was here. Timmy Stutzla, a senator, long term, gets an eight-year contract. We brought uh, Graham on to talk all about it, and uh, that was awesome. So check those out. And I can also let you know, I can confirm that uh, Slava Malamud will be here on Wednesday. He's also going to talk about the Canada-Russia 72 series, and he's, of course, going to bring a Soviet perspective to it. So that'll be really interesting. Um, guy has covered Russian hockey for a long time, thought it would be kind of neat to hear how this thing will be remembered and if it will be remembered uh, on its 50th anniversary over in Russia. And on Thursday, your pal Michaela Schreider, Screeds, is back in the studio as well. Uh, she's just back from Europe and uh, specifically Ireland and the UK. Uh, spent some time sipping on Guinness, no doubt, and uh, she's going to come in and we'll talk about that. Uh, lots on the agenda with her, but specifically, uh, what'd she find for beers over in the UK? So stick around for that. Speaking of beer, our pals over at the Nita Beer Company are putting on an Oktoberfest event this year. It is Saturday, September 24th, and uh, you can find all the information you need at nitabeer.com. You can get your tickets there. Uh, ticket, of course, gets you in, gets you a nice brat with all the traditional German fixing, gets you a beer stein full of one of Nita's beers, and you get to take Stein home with you, of course. Going to be a really cool time. We're looking forward to checking that out. They're looking forward to, uh, to doing it. Um, like I said, that is on September 24th. More details and tickets at nitabeer.com. With that out of the way, September 1972, a huge landmark in uh, in hockey. Uh, the CBC, as I mentioned, with the series Summit 72, four-part documentary series, is going to relive the whole thing. Uh, Dave Bedini from the West End Phoenix and the Rio Statics is a huge part of this production. I thank you for making a little time, man. How are you doing today? Hey, Matt, I'm good. Yourself? Uh, no complaints at all. I really appreciate uh, you making some time for us. Why don't we get right into it? Summit 72, and, and you're involved. How did that present itself to you, and, and what's your role? Uh, Nick DePontier, um is, is kind of the, the driving force behind getting this made. Um, he, uh, him and I worked together on my first uh, documentary um the hockey nomad 
which came out in 2002. And um, we've been friends forever. He did a bunch of the um, uh, film and visual work for our uh, restaging, reestatics, restaging of music inspired by the Group Seven. Um, we've worked together a lot. And uh, anyway, so yeah, we had actually talked about this idea five years ago, but it was a bit too too young still um, in its kind of development phase. And then uh, Nick got a call from Team Canada, um, the Team Canada 72 group, hmm. about uh, doing um, a kind of an official doc with their participation uh, on the series. And then so, you know, he called me and um, I ended up, so I'm a co-director, co-writer and music director, which is a lot of spinning plates, but um <laughs> I kind of, I, yeah, I, we had four directors and we kind of each um, took a, uh, uh, one of the episodes and developed it exclusively. And then we kind of, you know, worked as sounding boards and occasional contributors to the other, other episodes. And we also quote unquote wrote it, although there's no narration, it's all um, just the voices of the participants and people who were there at the time. Um, and a few, a few contemporary figures in there talking about, about, about hockey as well, but, um, there wasn't any like narration to write, but we kind of all conceived it together and, um, had a large team of, I think at one point we had 40 people working on this because there had to be a lot of our, yeah, archival sourcing and rights clearances and that kind of stuff. So, uh, yeah, it was a, it was a, it was a mountain to climb, um, but uh, it's done, and it's ready to go to air next Wednesday. It's been 50 years since uh, since this thing happened, and it, I was talking to somebody about this last week that it's almost like the last, as you know, I hope this doesn't come off as morbid, but the last major anniversary where you know before you start yeah. to maybe lose some of the the people who actually mm-hmm. remember this thing, and um, you know. How hard was it, uh, if you were approached by them, obviously they were eager to mark the anniversary and do it, but, um, you know, was it, uh, was it difficult to pry any answers out of people or, or get people involved maybe uh, who, who were a little hesitant or was everybody pretty gung-ho? Yeah, there were there were a few holdouts. Um, I'd, I'd met uh, Frank Mahovlich before and uh, a couple of times. I, I, I uh, interviewed him for CPAC, um, a long time ago at the McMichael gallery, we had a great, a great, a great hang. And then we were together, uh, in New York city about six years ago when they, uh, the Canadian American foundation celebrated Gretzky. I sang the national anthem with my wife there. And, um, so we were with Frank and, and Audra, uh, his wife. And, um, but when we, yeah, but 72, we didn't want to talk about it. So hmm. him and Don Ori were, were the only two that we didn't talk to. Everybody else was, um, you know, I think it, it's true, you know, the, the, the gravity of age um, in, informed their participation, I think, um, knowing that it's kind of the last chance that they would really have to, to t- tell about their time. And, you know, these guys, like, most most high level professional athletes kind of have great memories, anyways, because they're attuned um, to to sort of read the game and know the game and know the sport that way. Um, you know, growing up, and it's no accident that a lot of the great pros remember tendencies of opponents, remember goals scored, remember the, how they beat that goaltender the last time they faced them. So. The, the muscle, you know, uh, does get exercised. And so when it came time for them to talk about 
the fine, the granular nature of 72 was easy for them. And, and uh, yeah, we had great interviews with almost everyone. I had, uh, I don't know, maybe I was 10 or 11 years old. My parents gave me for Christmas one year a VHS of this the story of the 72 mm. series. And it was very short. I think it was maybe produced by like Molestar or something like that. There was a lot of eighties haircuts on these guys at this point that were had come back together. Some of them to tell the story. And I had, I wasn't a huge hockey fan yet, but I knew Canada was always very good. And I had heard somewhere, maybe just from my parents about this series and that Canada won. And I can remember putting the tape on and watching the highlights from game one on this tape. And they got just pumped by the Russians. And I was kind of like, Oh wow. Like, Obviously, this is not at all what I expected it to be. And as you move through the story, you know, Canada struggles here on on home ice and they have Mm -hmm. to rally when they get to Russia. You know, as you dug through this, what was sort of the takeaway from the guys that you spoke to on, um, you know, how this almost got away from them? Had they underestimated them? And was it just rolling in from the cottage, not in shape yet? Like, what was it that, that caused this to go the way that it did early on? Yeah, a couple of players, you know, um, Phil Esposito, who's the star of this series, really, bottom line, he's the star, he's so great, so quotable, and, and um, so colorful. Um, him and, and Yvonne Cornoyer both sort of said that, you know, uh, the morning of game one, they kind of looked at each other and, and sort of thought, you know, they thought aloud, you know, just you know, what's it going to be like? Like they didn't right. You know, up until that moment, they thought they were just going to walk. Um, you know, the Russians showed up in the Montreal forum with, you know, they, they used, um, Montreal brand, uh, wooden sticks, which, you know, that was when you, we used to go into a hockey store in the seventies. That was like the stick that nobody wanted. They were really <laughs> heavy. You know, they weren't, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't Sherwood. Like they, they had no brand name recognition to the Russians. Um, were able to, to buy them um, and use them. And, um, you know, their skates were still pretty leathery and they had all of those kind of crappy plastic helmets, those flower boxes yeah. on their heads. And um, so they didn't look like much, really. And um, and it was less. so, and you listen, these NHLers were the best. They were the stars of hockey and made the most money, which counted for something back then. So, um, and still does. Um, and they, um, yeah, so... It wasn't really till the morning of that they thought, could it go? Could it go badly? <laughs> and they asked themselves that question. And um, so, so yeah. So it's funny. Their surprise, bewilderment, uh, shame, humiliation—you know, emotional trauma that they faced in that game, suffered in that game, was shared by you know, all of us who watched it because everyone, there was only one columnist, John Robertson from the Winnipeg sun, I believe, or the free press. He predicted the series would close, would be close, but you know, venerated hockey experts at the time, Trent Frayne, Scott Young, all the great ones, Milton L. They all thought it was going to be a slaughter. (laughs) So, um, yeah, so it was really interesting to, you know, for them to, to relive that with them. Cause I certainly remember, you know, I remember I've told the story before, but how as a nine year old kid, it was the first time I really saw adults worried, upset, kind of rattled <laughs> by this. And it, that was, that was tough for a kid, you know, to see the giants of their world 
the adult, you know, my parents, my uncles, my aunts, and my hockey heroes, you know, sure. go, have to go through this. So, <laughs> so in a weird way, narratively for us as filmmakers, Jesus, it was the best. That's the best setup, right? And oh, yeah. You're right. You know, because they get a chance to come back. Like Canada went very poorly. They broke boot off the ice in Vancouver. The nation turned its back on these guys, you know, and then they, they had to go to Russia. They had to go behind the Iron Curtain. It was those were rough, rough, rough conditions, you know, um, and had, they had to face a, a, an incredible team. But they figured it out, and, you know, hat tip to Harry Sinden, the coach, who really one of the most masterful coaching and, uh, performances um, of, in the history of sport, you know, going into a, you know, to play in a ring twice, twice as big as any of those guys that skated on, you know, having to face, um, a, you know, dubious European refs um, and the hostile environment of Soviet Russia. So narratively, it was, it was pretty easy to kind of chart that path. We just had to make sure we got out of the way of it and allowed the players and everybody to tell the story. I often wonder, and, and there's no... There's no way to know. It would all be just guesswork. But I, I can remember like this being the time, and there's a Twitter account that uh, I followed quite a bit that was, and I think just yesterday he actually announced he was shutting it down, but it was called Hockey 50 Years Ago. And uh, he just tweets out all the headlines from the hockey news of the day of, mm-hmm. uh, of you know what was happening 50 years ago. And he talked about Bobby Orr having reported to training camp, but they no one was sure whether he was going to be able to play. And of course, he doesn't end up playing for Team Canada. Is there, do you have any thoughts at all? Did anyone in the, in the, the doc bring up like how different this might've been if Bobby had played and his impact on it, whether or not he, you know, what it was like for him not to be able to participate kind of what, where, where was Bobby or in the orbit of this thing? Um, it's interesting. Uh, you know, I asked Harrison about, because Bobby, Bobby's in all the press conferences in, in Russia too. Like he's there with the team. Hmm. He was with the team all the way. And I said to Harry, like, he knew he wasn't going to play, but did you keep him around just to plant the seed in the Russians? Right. Um, you know, to, to that would worry them or, you know, have to do that extra prep just in case Bobby played. But he said, no. no. He said, you know, Bob just wanted to be around the guys. You know, he wanted to vicariously, you know, um, be there and support the guys as well. Because um, I thought tactically that that would have sure. been really interesting, you know, to keep him around. But, um <laughs> Uh, and it's hard, you know, uh, yeah, those guys, a few of the guys have said that uh, Bobby, you know, sure, he could have tilted the scales and and having him in there, you know, uh, would have, get, you know, would have certainly improved their chances. But, you know, the Russians had an answer for pretty much everything. Mm-hmm. And it is fascinating. I think a more fascinating question is, um, you know, what would how would the Russians have altered their game plan or would they have if if bobby was there and how would how would they have defended against him we'll never know but it's tantalizing to think about that scenario for sure because there's a, in a lot of ways bobby played more like the russians and almost anybody else on the canadian team and one man can't change an entire game plan for his own team i, I certainly understand although if any man could uh it might have been bobby but but he was willing to circle back. He was willing to hold the puck. He was a lot of those things that the Soviets did quite a bit that kind of befuddled Canada in terms of the cover. Like the, the Soviets were never about shooting it in. And, you know, if they didn't like the look of something, they'd circle back and try it again. And uh, it well, just, the comparison is interesting. He, it is. It is. Um, however, the difference is, you know, 
well, Bobby was able to move east west and you know move in in, in those in uh, you know more of a circular kind of game. Um, the Russians did that as a five man yes. unit, yeah. right? So you know Bobby was able to do it against a bunch <laughs> of flat footed north south guys, but um, but but no. And it's interesting because you watch Game Seven and Great Game Eight in particular, and uh, Brad Park. You know, uh, Brad Park was you know the closest thing that. Uh, the, that uh, an NHL Eller defenseman came to it came to being like Bobby, mm-hmm. I guess. Although, well, also being incredibly unlike Bobby, but a rushing defense, rushing defenseman. And um, you watch Game Seven and Eight; he finds that game a little bit more. Like he is, he really moves the puck, and and he does get the better of the Russians in those games, especially in Game Eight. So you know. Um, it's it's yeah that, that's a bit of a glimmer i think if you know bobby had been there doing that it's it's possible that um it would have been too much for them to handle but again at the end end of that series the russians are asking questions of themselves because the canadians are coming back right sure. and um uh and, and so i think they're kind of it's the right time for them to kind of be exposed a little bit just because they um uh, there's certain certain things that they're you know they're they're having trouble with in terms of as the Canadians get better and as the Canadians move the puck more share the puck more you know Harry did a thing where he um, uh, and this was incredibly innovative for its time and, and thought of really in kind of the hot the hot frenzy of the moment um, in Game Five um, he had his wingers the Team Canada wingers. Um, in 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 the defensive zone, um, almost ignore the points. Hmm. He had them contain the Russian wingers in the corners um, to support the D and um, and to allow them, you know, because the the corners were enormous yes. in, in the rinks over there. They just needed to almost like you know double team, almost like in basketball, double team the wingers and the Russians too. Um, well, they could shoot the puck, clearly. Um, their D could shoot the puck. They didn't really have the kind of, you know, shot from the point that was really effective in North American hockey. In fact, they would they would just as soon pass the puck as kind of fire it. And um, and so the fact, so Harry realized that they could leave those guys kind of standing at the point, uh, uh, expose the point a little bit more right. um, and, and be more effective just kind of checking down low with two men down there instead of instead of up high. That's interesting. I, I was talking um, a week or two ago to my parents who my mom could remember vividly, like so many mm-hmm. other Canadians, them wheeling the TV into the classroom for game eight. And uh, and she was asking me, just knowing that obviously I came along long after I wasn't around for the series, but knowing I, I follow a lot of this stuff, I like the history and just, and I had no idea. So I, I'm going to ask you, mm-hmm. is there any, uh, I don't know if they were able to track back then TV ratings, um, when this started, everybody knew, you know, it's, it's capitalism versus communism. It's us versus them. It's, but there's also a certain amount, as we talked about of anticipation, it just kind of crushing them by the end of this. Clearly there is a feverish following that Canada's got to come back and win this game eight at the very beginning. Is there, is it being followed quite so intensely or what is the vibe kind of around it as it starts? Um, well, 14 million people watch Game 8, so that's one one in two, right? That's half the country, right? <laughs> Which is wild. And, uh, you know, um, Gretzky was 
once the, the, it was pointed out to Kresge that more people in Canada watched Game 8 of 72 than watched the moon launch. And Gretzky said, well, it was more important. <laughs> so, and dude, it was. Um, but no, August, uh, yeah, sorry. Um, yeah, like even the announcement of the team was a huge deal. Like this was, because one of the things you have to remember was Canada on the world's stage, not North American, but on the world stage, Canada was trounced by the Russians um, repeatedly in the Olympics and in the world championships, right? Like mm-hmm. we were cannon fodder for the Russians. I mean, God bless the trail smoke eaters and the bits Penticton V's and the Whitby Dunlops and all those, you know, senior hockey teams that would go over to the compete, compete, you know, some of them, you know, won championships, but generally it was, uh, you know, the, no, the Russians would, would, would dominate. So that was a real, you know, chip on our shoulder. Uh, because you know, we weren't came, sending the NHLers to yeah, play. That's yeah, right, yeah, that's right. That's right. We were sending seniors and yeah. we were sending juniors and stuff. So, no, so the anticipation, it was like, oh, and don't forget, like, in terms of, North, from a North American view, the Russians were the, our global enemies. They right. really were. You know, they were, they were a fearsome, they were a fearsome, new, unstable, much like it is today, nuclear power. You know, they, um, they were, they, they were, um, you know, it was the Iron Curtain, right? That was a kept people, you know, uh, 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 as part of this massive militarized landmass, right? And, um, you know, that was the time as well of, you know, uh, dissident writers that, you know, and artists and uh, political uh, folks that would come over here and talk about life in the Soviet Union. Probably the reality was somewhere in between, you know, what we were hearing, good and bad, the propaganda that was coming from there. And so, so, but still, no, I mean, and, and, and so for them coming to play, play us and that was the, but another fascinating thing was, you know, they were so feared, uh, you know, and, and we held them in such awe, um, as political animals, but as hockey players, right. they were beauties. Yeah. And that was another thing that was just kind of hard to square. It's like, shouldn't, shouldn't they have been these, you know, they terrified us with their poetry, you know, because they were beautiful skaters and they, you know, just the way they moved was so balletic and they were so organized. And that's one of the kind of incredible, um, uh, uh, you know, um, narrative properties, you know, of, of the series that we were the guy we came off as the thugs yes. and somebody Slava Malmud, um, the, um, the writer, uh, the Russian writer says, you know, um, everywhere else in the world, Canadians are re- regarded as these kind of, you know, polite, effete, um, lovely, generous um, humans. Whereas in Russia, we were seen as these monstrous thugs <laughs> that would beat you over the head to get the puck, right? So, and yeah, just... And was it Karlamov that got his ankle? Karlamov, yeah. yeah. Clarky, Bobby Clark, <laughs> yeah. Just a t- broad two-hand, like not even a... Not even a tickle in the corner, but just a two-handed. It was, um, it was uh, McSorley Brashear, yeah. but on the ankle, right? Like the in but he's full wearing view. the Maple Leaf, so God love him at the time, uh, right? And just... Well, it's funny, you know. And and, and I, I, yeah, an interview interviewer asked me about you know the abysmal, um, you know, the shameful behavior of the Canadians 
um, and how, you know, how that what that shouldn't be a source of, of pride in terms of the way we play. And I and no. And I, and I think I think there's there can be two equally weighted answers you know, to that. I, mean, I, I do think, you know, there were it would, you know, there, the Canadians behave very poorly and, and, and you know, they were, you know, um, they did resort it to resort to violence and real kind of thuggish behavior a lot after the whistle stuff and a lot of really dirty stuff but you know these guys had the historical societal cultural sporting legacy on their fucking backs like losing was just not an option so they were put in a play and and i can't say i can't say unequivocally that i wouldn't have done the same thing sure because um they had to face the music right and they're the Russians are no different than anyone else. If you're in conflict with or whatever, once you've decided that they're the bad guys and that they can, you know, the, the big bad Russian enemy with the nuclear weapons and all that, you can dehumanize those players. And now it's easier to slash them. Now it's easier to go. Yeah. Fuck that guy. Right. Like it's, it's not just a hockey game anymore. It's the culture you grow up in and how your view of those people is kind of shaped, goes into, you know, how you want to treat them when confronted by them. I mean, these guys, the players would have would have lived through the Bay of Pigs. You know, they would have lived through Duck and Cover, right? Yeah. They would have lived for through you know the the you know theirs. They could, you know, they could bomb. They'll bomb. They could bomb Manhattan tomorrow, and they, so all of the all of that. We were, they came, went into those in that series, you know, um, with with that mindset. So um, yeah, it's uh, uh, it's just the depth of. Um, you know, the backdrop for the series. And there's very few episodes like that, you know, in sporting history, you know, where there's so much, there's so much culture, there's so much political context. And 72 is right there in the middle of, of, of the most exquisite in terms of storytelling uh, that hit on those points. Yeah. Normally, if you're in that much of a conflict with someone, you just don't compete against them in something like sports or things are fine between your countries and there's no real hatred to be had quite the same way. One of the things, though, that that is intriguing to me uh, and I'm sure it's covered to some degree in the in the series, is Alan Eagleson, who was such a major character in putting this together and was so involved with the players at the time. And he goes on to start the union. Of course, he ends up uh, doing time and uh, defrauding a bunch of the players. I wonder, you know, how much that's covered in the series and, and did, you know, the guys have a hard time talking about him in the sense that at the time he was very much in their corner and vice versa, uh, when he was confronted with some problems there, yeah. game eight. But now, with hindsight being what it is and what he turned out to be, um, were they prepared to talk about him in quite the same way? Or, well, we decided, um, you know, because there's so much story, there's only thirty-four minutes per episode of our four episodes. We decided kind of early on that that's another documentary, right, honestly, okay. and I think it is. So, for us to kind of step off and really devote the time um, and the thought into exploring his complication as a major figure in hockey it just would have we wouldn't have been able to crowbar it in um, we interviewed Al and uh, you know like Espo he's super smart and super you know articulate and obviously loves hockey and loves that team and they just, that's part of his legacy um, he was really valuable as somebody who 
was able to just kind of, you know, provide that kind of insight into us because he was involved in just every step of the way, you know, from the just very beginnings of, the, you know, um, of just birthing the idea and making this happen. Remember, that's like, this is international brokerage. Like, this is high level, you know, bringing these two nations together and say, you know, say nothing of having to go to Moscow and deal with, you know, <laughs> you know the state there. And like, yeah, so incredible achievement. Yeah. Um, listen, that other side of him too. Um, I think that, you know, that it should be acknowledged that he defrauded players and he ripped them off and, and, um, you know, Bobby Orr, right. Um, we, I should mention too, Bob, we didn't talk to Bob and probably one of the reasons we didn't talk to him was because, because of Al, right. Right. We had, you know, his participation. So, um, and in the end, it was hard for us to know whether we would have been able to fit Bob in there too much, too, because he didn't play, right? Sure. But, um, yeah, no, it's, it's listen, that's it's the plot even, you know, it thickens even further when you think about about those players and, 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 and Eagle, too, and how they coexisted and, and, and you know, what their legacies are. There's uh, The characters are really rich throughout, for sure. As we sit here 50 years removed and, um, you know, a huge swath of the viewership for this thing won't have even been born at the time mm. that uh, the series took place. Why is this one so like we've been to the well a few times on this. There have been other docs and other series yep. and, and books written and whatever, and we just keep wanting more. And it, I'm sure part of it is the backdrop and it being a different world. But there's got there's something to this series and the people involved and the timing of it or so that we just can't get enough of hearing this story. And it, it makes sense on the 50th anniversary to tell it again. Um, but what do you think it is that makes us, you know? Never forget that even when Crosby scores his golden goal, it's like the conversation immediately goes to, is this bigger than, than 72? And it's different than 72. I don't know if it's bigger or what, but it, that's always the measuring stick. That's still where we go back to, even as less and less of us remember, actually remember it. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't, I hate to get in that, into that contest of, you know, what, what was the best, what was the most memorable, no, because sure. they were all, that's an 87 for me. It was so personally memorable, you know, it was our first Canadian tour and we followed the series back across from Western Canada, you know, <laughs> home. And, um, then the hockey was exquisite. I mean, those, that three game series was, you know, some of the greatest hockey ever played and, you know, 2010 as well, you know, that we win that game and it gives us more gold medals than any other host nation in winter Olympics history. And, 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 that was just such an incredible time as well. So, and I even go back to 2002 with the women's gold medal in that game against the Americans. So we're lucky to, you know, to live through um, a lot of incredible sporting events. And that's just hockey to say nothing of other sports. You know, the Raptors uh, winning was as important to this city as any any other championships. Yeah, sure. You can build Ben Johnson, even you can build so much of it, but um, you know, I, I just, I just will say that, um, one of the things that we wanted to do with this film, you know, versus the other work that's been done about 72 is make a film that um, can exist cinematically, um, you know, in the now. And we wanted it to really um, uh, kind of sing uh, and move in a way that um, that wasn't just talking head highlight, talking head highlight, talking head highlight, which is what, you know, um, uh, the kind of just the, the sort of the fat middle of sports media is largely. So we brought a real kind of filmmaker cinematic eye to it, I guess. 
and um, it dances, I think, uh, uh, which I think will help kind of, you know, um, um, engage uh, viewers who are who aren't my age. Right. Viewers who come at it um, completely fresh mm-hmm. and and communicate it um, in the with the kind of kind of a, a, um, a anxious um, excitement and joy and, you know, emotional distress that, um, uh, that was part of, of witnessing that series when it happened. So yeah, we'll see. It'd be great. You know, it's just going to be great to get it out there and get feedback from people. And, you know, we've lived inside it for the last year and it'll be good to kind of step outside. You said, and, uh, uh let, yeah, other people see it. You said that, uh, you know, each of you took an episode, which one is yours? Uh, mine, mine is episode three, which is, um, yeah, leaving Vancouver and then we're in Russia. So I, I, I tell the story of the, of the, of games five, six, and seven, including the Swedish games that they played before oh, interesting. they got to Moscow. Yeah. They're, they're amazing. The footage is incredible. My, I'm proud to say that in my episode, my episode is the only one where players both swear and cry. <laughs> so <laughs> some depth there. Yeah. Well, Bill Goldsworthy calls Joseph, Joseph Kampala a fucking Nazi. <laughs> and I was really, I was really worried that, that the CBC would take that out, but they didn't. So oh, that's great. So, yeah, um, wow. yeah, so that's, that's episode three, but episode one, I had a large hand in as well. And, and we all did. And, and, um, uh, that's directed by Nick DePontier is a brilliant filmmaker. And that's really, anyways, they're all great. And, sure. and, uh, they're all a bit different too. So, but I, yeah, it's going to be cool to get them out of the box. Just, uh, before I let you go, since you covered that yep. one specifically, do I have it right? I can't find any evidence of this. I did a brief search for it beforehand. <laughs> Did some of the guys, because they, they had a big roster, not everyone was playing every game. Did some of the guys leave at that point? It was going poorly and they decided not to go to Russia or is that kind of urban myth? No, four guys went home. Yeah. Yeah. The Vic Hadfield, Jill Pro, Jocelyn gave them all, Rick Martin. They all, yeah, Vic um, was a star in the NHL. You know, he played in the goal game line with Rattel and Roger Bear. And, you know, it's funny, again, getting back to Harry, you know, Harry, because they're down 3-1, um, 3-1-1 with three games left, he had to pair his roster. You know, he couldn't. it couldn't be a country club. It yeah, couldn't we're not be, barnstorming here. We got to win well, Right. Yeah. Well, and there was, there was that part of it, too. A lot of the players thought it was kind of a – and it was technically an exhibition. There was nothing, you know, there was no trophy at the end of it. Right. And so uh, in the first, you know, he – you know, he tried to play everyone, you know, at least once in those first four games in Canada and realized it's not how you build a team. Um, so he had to tell. So Vic didn't get a chance to play. Vic was like, well, I might as well go down back to Buffalo to training camp. Right. Sure. And punch him like was on the phone with him trying to get him to go back anyways. And the same with Gilles Perot. Um, sorry, Vic went to New York, Martin and, uh, and Perot went to Buffalo and Gabriel Mon was just a kid too. So he just kind of followed his, um, French Canadian buddies back home, but yeah, they four left and that was scandalous as well. And mm-hmm. that was even more proof that the team was falling apart because guys were leaving. Right. I don't think, you know, in some, some corners there, especially Hadfield is painted as, as a bit of a Judas, but he wasn't playing. He was, those guys were eating, you know, um, meat that they thought were steaks, but were, 
you know, the rumor was it was just like, you know, somebody had shot a black bird and they fried it up. You know, their beer was missing. You know, there were phone calls in the middle of the night at the in tourist hotel in Moscow. It was shitty over there. Like they were not having fun. So you're not playing. You're not having fun. Your GM's calling you, telling you better get back. I can I can see them hopping on that plane. So that happened so, after they had gone over. Yeah. Not, not when they left, well, not when everyone else no. left for, from Vancouver. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah, they did go there, yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Wow. Yep. There's a lot. And unfortunately, that's a, that's a great anecdote, but we couldn't fit that in the film either. So there's, uh, yeah, but there's a lot of great books out there, including mine, which is Wild Stab for It, which is coming out in paperback actually uh, next next week as well. But so, yeah, if people like this, like the series, there's tons of great stuff to read um, uh, about the series as well. That'll fill in some of the gaps. We'll make sure we uh, put links to that in the show notes. Um this is awesome. I, I'm really looking forward to checking this out. I'm always a nerd for this sort of uh, this sort mm-hmm. of stuff. But even the the way you guys are talking about how it's been shot and uh, everything about this seems uh, very exciting. I it's, it's it it starts on the 14th. Is it every Wednesday for four weeks at that point? Yeah, that's yeah. right, exactly. And it's a good, you know, like after Labor Day. Personally, I'm I'm always thinking of like our hockey season actually starts yeah. uh, this this weekend. So it's like. Yeah, so this will be a it's good time. pre-NHL. Yeah, get people get people going. Uh, yeah, last thing time. before I let you go, then uh, I'd be remiss uh, to not ask you what you're, what do you think as uh, as camp's approach of the Leafs this year? Um, I, to me, it looks as a regular season team like they'll probably be fine again, and you just got to take another swing at it in the playoffs. I what do you think? Yeah, I mean, obviously, goaltending is the massive, massive, massive question. It's really going to be interesting to see how that goes. I mean, it could go, (laughs) well, it could go one of two ways, right? So um, that's, boy, we'll all be, yeah, keyed into that. I think the rest of the team is going to be fine, obviously. And um, yeah, I'm not worried about any of that, but um, but goaltending, that's going to be all we're talking about probably for most of the year. So that's going to be neat. It's going to be neat to see. um, yeah, I'm ex- I'm ex- yeah, I'm always excited for the year, and I'm excited for it to to come again, and and uh, hope springs eternal, as they say. That's right. I was uh, yep. I was alarmed when they went out, and that was the goaltending tandem that they had brought in for the year. But as the summer goes on, you start to try and talk yourself into it once camp exactly camp yeah, opens up. And you're is, like, let's go. All right. it takes is one good save. That's, that's right. Good, that's yeah. right. Uh, Dave totally. Bedini, thank you right so on. much for doing this, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah, anytime. My pleasure. Always great talking to you. Uh, that, of course, was Dave Bedini of the Rio Statics, the West End Phoenix, uh, author of Wild Stab for It. If you want to check out the book, the link is in the show notes here at tallcanaudio.com or in your podcast app. Just click on it. Uh, you can check it out there. Highly recommend that as well. Uh, really appreciate him making some time for us. We're going to get out of here. Uh, before we do, don't forget, on Wednesday, Slava Malamud is here. That'll be episode 1011. And we'll be getting the Soviet perspective on uh, the this uh, this same Canada-Russia series. I thought that might be kind of cool to hear how the other side uh, viewed this thing and maybe what its legacy is right now uh, in Russia. Don't forget also, if you're interested in checking out Oktoberfest with the Nita Beer Company, hit up nitabeer.com. All the info you need right there. That sounds like it's going to be an awful lot of fun. You can get your tickets there as well, so don't forget to check that out. Uh, Screech, Michaela Schreider, back in the house on Thursday. Until then, my name's Matt Robinson. Thank you all for listening, and we will catch you all next time. I am unhappy with the confusing and at times confrontational nature of that meeting. I wanted it to go better. I wanted it to go better!